Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Book of Romans, chapter 13, and uh, we're going to begin this morning in verse 11. It says this, And do this, and the previous context, 8 through 10, was this discussion and prompting to love others. Okay? Do this, love, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We live in a world that is time conscious. Right? We have uh, reminders of uh, time. We set alarm clocks. We wear watches. We have Cell phones that constantly remind us of time. We get in the car, and when you get in the car, there's a clock that tells you what time it is. If you're sitting at your computer, you're reminded of the time. All the time, we're reminded of time. And we are often ruled by it. Many of us have a tendency to complain about the fact that we don't have enough time. And so then we start to uh, talk in foolish ways. We talk about saving time. We talk about buying time, and the truth is none of those things can really be done. We can restructure time as it comes to us and our use of it, but we really can't save it, and we really can't buy it. It can't be replaced. We all have the same amount, and it is an irreplaceable commodity. The text that we're going to look at this morning is a very time-conscious text. I want you to notice with me these time markers that are present. Verse 11, it says, understanding the present time and the hour that has already come. Verse 12, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Verse 13, live decently as in the daytime. So over and over, this text puts an emphasis on this idea of time being conscious of the season in which you live your life and being thoughtful about how you live your life. One of the phrases that's used in this text to talk about time is this one in verse 12. The day is almost here. All right, the day is almost here. And what might this be referring to? And I think what this does is it not only brings us to the kind of the theme of the text about time, but it brings us to a theological connection between this text and Christian living. All right, and the theological connection is the connection of if you want to use the word prophecy, eschatology, or end times. Okay, the time here is a direct reference towards the idea of the coming of Jesus Christ and really the fulfillment of Christian hope. In verse 11, he says that in, in relationship to this concept of time, he says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So you think about it and you say, well, isn't it true in the Bible that the New Testament teaches that salvation comes at the time that an individual places faith in Jesus. You believe in Christ and you are saved from your sin. 
And then sometimes we begin to think about salvation as, as just that. In this text, what is Paul saying? He's saying there was a salvation in the past at the time you believed, but there also is a future salvation that's talked about here. Our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The idea is that there is the culmination or the fullness of the salvation that God has promised. Our salvation is near. And the idea of salvation here is freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from struggle, freedom from fighting, freedom from hardship. All of those things are find in the culmination at the end of the age. They find a driving away and a rising of righteousness in the name of Christ. So our salvation that we experience personally becomes a global effect that we will enjoy in the kingdom. So in that sense, Paul can say, Our salvation is near. He also says in verse 12, the night is nearly over and the day is almost here. Okay, and this is where the theological theme, I think, becomes very clear. Throughout the New Testament, the writers refer to the return of Jesus as the day of the Lord. Okay, the day when what has begun in us in the saving work of Christ is finally and fully realized on the entire planet on which we live. Jesus prayed in this way. He said in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. What do we look forward to? We look forward to a day when there is a new heaven and a new earth on which dwells righteousness. And when that happens, that is the fullness of the salvation that we experience internally today. Okay, so our salvation, the full outworking of it, is awaiting a greater fulfillment that takes place in the day of the Lord. Okay, that day of the Lord theme, I think, is a lot of what drives this passage of Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, Paul says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So there's this future day when Jesus Christ has his way on this planet. And that is the fullness of salvation that we as believers await. A time of light and not, and not of darkness. It is a dawning of the kingdom. It is the end of death. It is the end of sin. And it is the end of struggle. So whenever this idea of the day of Christ or the day of the Lord is used in Scripture, it always has... With it, the idea of a warning. Watch your behavior. Turn to Him because the Lord is coming. But it also serves as an encouragement to believers. Don't take revenge. Don't be a tit-for-tat kind of person. Love your enemies. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. And the idea of the day of the Lord coming is this idea that ultimately there will be justice flowing over the earth, the Bible says, like the waters cover the sea. So this thought, this idea of the day of the Lord, of the coming of Christ, is meant in each context for us as believers to be a warning to watch how we live, but also it is an exhortation or an encouragement in living for Him. Knowing that one day, that day of justice is coming. When Jesus came in His first coming, He started something. But He clearly didn't finish it. And so... You know, we watch events in our world, events that are very troubling to us, patterns that are very troubling to us. Why? Because the fullness of the kingdom of Christ 
has not yet come. Okay, we're waiting for that fullness of the day of the Lord. What he began and what he will accomplish. And where do we live? We live smack dab in the middle, don't we? All right, he's come, he's purchased salvation, made it possible. He is coming in the future to put down sin and rebellion. And we live in this age that is an overlapping time period. In some, uh, in some areas, they call it the church age. What we really mean is this. It is the time between the inauguration, the beginning of what Christ is doing, and the culmination of what Christ is doing. And so this age is typified by what? It's typified by struggle, by sin, by temptation, by battle, by salvation and victory. Right? It's, it's a mix. It's an overlap. It's not all of one thing or all of the other. But it is where we live. And the question that I believe this text seeks to answer is, how should we live in these times? In the time between the first coming of Christ to pay the price for our sin and the second coming of Christ for the culmination of the kingdom. How should believers live? This text seeks to answer that question. I think it does it in three specific ways. So the theme is this. Live in light of or be motivated in your Christian living by the fact that one day Christ is coming. All right? Be motivated by the time of Christ's return. And encourage each other, Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians, with these words. So, how do I live in light of? How do I stay motivated in my Christian experience and walk by the coming of Christ? I'm going to give you three simple observations from this text as to how... We can make the most of the time that God has given to us today. Verse 11 says this. Do this knowing the present time. All right, here's, here's the idea. Do this knowing the present time. That is the age, the season, the moment in which you live. All right, and, and here's the idea. Know the time. It was for the believers in the early church a well-accepted, well-acknowledged, well-known fact that the coming of Jesus is near. Okay? So you know the time. You know that the next event on God's calendar is the coming of Jesus. Live as if that is true. So what is, it, what is meant by the idea of knowing the time? What does this word time mean? Here's a couple thoughts. Time is an opportunity for action. All right? In this text, what do you say? You know the present time that the hour has already come for you to awake from your slumber or from your sleep, okay? The alarm clock is going off in terms of the kingdom of God. That's the idea, okay? So it is time for us as believers to take action, okay? This word is often used to talk about seasons through the year in the agricultural realm, in the realm of farming, okay? The season for planting seed in this area is right now. All right, so if you go out and you call the local farmer and say, hey, you want to go fishing or you want to get together and go out and play, you know, 36 holes of golf, uh, the average farmer is going to say to you, I have a window. I have a moment. I have an opportunity in which I can do this work. And if I don't get it done, the opportunity does not come back. Okay, and that's, that's the idea of the word time here. It refers to a, a season that is an opportunity to accomplish very specific things. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first child, with Rebecca. Uh, and the first one, you are so 
time conscious, right? As you get into the ninth month, you're thinking, oh, I got to be careful how far I go away. And you become very aware of the inevitability of an event that is drawing near. And, and in the ninth month, you're kind of like, okay, we're, we're, we're kind of there. Okay, we're at the moment. And I remember the night that the, the water broke, and I was like, okay, this is the time for at, we got to do something. I remember the doctors telling us as we went through the Lamaze class, you know, when, you, when that happens, you got to take action, be ready. And this is the idea of the text. You have time. That time is an opportunity to do things that you will not be able to do later. It raises the sense of urgency. Be time conscious. Another thought that, that I think arises from this text is this. Time that we are given, that opportunity can be wasted. There's, we can be caught up in other things and miss opportunities. All right? As you're raising your children, you realize, I hope you know this, all of a sudden, the house could be empty. And you're going to be like, where did the time go? All right? it, it flies. It moves so quickly. It's an opportunity. And what do you need to do? You need to get up. That's the idea of the text here. It's time for us to awake out of sleep. To take advantage of, to make the most of the opportunities that God has given us. When I went through this, I thought of uh, teenagers and how much they like to sleep. All right, And I thought in this way, as Christians, we can be spiritually adolescents, can't we? We can be spiritually lethargic. We can be sleeping and wasting opportunities and time. We can be people that live hitting the snooze button of life and checking out of the God-ordained seasons and opportunities that He gives us that are brief and that can be wasted. The last idea is that this opportunity is limited so we need to know the time and in this context what does he say he says the time is defined as the time of our salvation is drawing near christ is coming and the things that we need to do we ought to do we should do why because christ is coming and the opportunity to do the things that we have to do will pass the implication of this text is our salvation has come near Right, it's at the end of verse 11. Our salvation ha- is nearer now than when we first believed. The idea that it has drawn near and it is the, the next event is the coming of Christ. The culmination of the kingdom. And so we have an opportunity now to make a difference in people's lives. That time is brief. About a month and a half ago, I received a phone call from my brother, Don. <clears throat> and he shared with me the story of a lady that I grew up around. Her name is Carolyn Blum the longest-term employee at my brother's store. She had worked there 33 years. She was a grandmother, 12 children. She was making the most of her time. And he told me that she had passed away. Suddenly, 73 years old. Time ended. What was she doing? It was a Sunday afternoon. She went with one of her grandchildren to a 4-H event, tripped, fell on the stairs, blunt blunt force trauma to the head, and bled out in one hour. Went to her funeral. And here's what I was reminded of at her funeral. Carolyn was a woman that made the most of her time. Literally hundreds of people flowed through 
That's that flowed through it, that viewing and at that ceremony. Because she had allowed her life to count for Christ. And folks, here's the bottom line. We need to know the times in which we live. We need to be aware, conscious, that God has given to us a brief opportunity. Jesus said it to his disciples in this way. On the eve of his crucifixion, he said to them, and not only them, but at other times, he said, watch and wait. Be careful. Guard your time so that you don't fall into temptation, so that you don't waste the opportunity that God has given you. And so, folks, I beg this of you this morning. Be aware of where you live in in the context of salvation history. Realize that from the time of the, the coming of Christ first time to the coming of Christ the second time, that we live in a time when it has drawn near, it has come into proximity. We have limited opportunity. And it is possible that we could waste that opportunity. Here's the bottom line. When you know what time it is, it affects how you live. It gives you a sense of urgency when you know that the moment for action is drawing near. And so the first thing that this text kind of, I think, encourages us to do is know the time in which you live. And then what he's going to do in verses 12 and following, he's going to drift into an analogy of what we do with clothing. Okay? In the morning, if you wear pajamas, what do you do? You get up and you take off your pajamas and you put on your day clothes and you go to work. You go into action. There are things that you need to do. And so what this text is going to encourage us to do, verse 12, it says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost spent. It's going to encourage us to put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Okay, so the analogy that governs the rest of the text and it's going to lead us to two principles is put some things off from your life. Cast them aside. And then there are other things that you ought to be covering your life with. That's how we live ready to serve God in the times that we are called to serve Him in. So follow along with me in this analogy. So let us, verse 12 in the middle says, put aside deeds of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Alright, so two statements. Put aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Then the next two verses, verse 13 and verse 14, tell us how to do each one of those actions. Okay, now, here's what I want you to see. Okay, there's a tendency to be spiritually lethargic. So what do we need to do? We need to get up, change our clothes spiritually, and go on with the day. What happens to us spiritually? We often walk around in our Sleepy pajamas, right? Uh, For most of you, it probably wouldn't work well if you showed up at work tomorrow in your pajamas. Okay? Because what do pajamas do? They prompt slumber. Okay? They promote, they give you an attitude about how you're conducting yourself. That's what they do. People say, ah, I can't wait to get these dress clothes off and I'm going to put on something relaxing, sit down and watch a movie. And if you're like me, here's what happens. Like, whoa. All right? You're gone. Why? Those relaxing clothes for the nighttime. But we as Christians are people of what? This text, you are people of the day. Live awake, live alert, make the most of your opportunity so that you don't fall into temptation and waste the opportunity, the life that God has in you redeemed and preserved for himself. So, what is it that we are to put off 
that we are to avoid. And, and here's the way Paul says it. He says, so then, in light of the time in which you live, so then, put off deeds of darkness, put on armor of light. Verse 13, he goes on to now describe this idea of putting off. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Okay, we are people of light, of righteousness. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. And then he gives us three couplets of things that we as Christians are to avoid. All right, the first one is this. Behave decently, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So generally speaking, put off darkness, put off all that is from the old life, the old way. But specifically, he gives us three categories that we need to guard, three areas in our hearts that we need to guard from sinful tendencies. The first one is described by orgies and drunkenness. And the idea of orgies in, in, the, in the ancient time was this. It was all-night parties that were given to substance abuse and immorality. Okay, and they were typically coupled together. Okay, in the ancient world, this would kind of be the kind of the spring break idea if you're looking at it from the side of a very sensual or worldly picture. So what's the idea that he's going after here? He's telling us that we need to guard our hearts in terms of morality. We need to realize that for Christians, there are things that are out of bounds for people of light. Now, do we live in a dark world? If you've been keeping up with the news recently, you know we live in a morally darkened world. What is the what does the effect of that on believers tend to be? It tends to dull us and to cause us to be sleepy. Why? Because it, it, it can infect us. It can touch our lives. It can get on us. And what is Paul saying? Cast this stuff aside. Throw it off as, it, as if it is dirty clothes and put on fresh clothes. Clean clothes. So the idea in this first category is all night parties where alcohol is used to remove all inhibitions, to be accepted, to dull pain, to loosen up, to forget problems, to destroy boundaries. The result is a complete lack of self-control. Okay, what is Paul saying? He's saying, if you're tempted to that kind of thing, put it aside. Why? It will lull you to sleep. It is like a spiritual sleeping pill. Secondly, he says this. Put aside sexual immorality and debauchery. Okay, two words. One basically is it kind of falls into the category of everything extramarital, extramarital in relationship to sexuality. Okay, it could relate to adultery, it could relate to pornography, any type of sensual stimulation that causes you to become spiritually drowsy and, in a sense, drawn away from God, broken off in fellowship from God. All right, the idea is that we are to resist things that degrade. And shame the gifts that God has given us. The second word has the idea of brazen sin that has lost any sense of shame. And as I thought of this, I thought of the world in which I live. A world that calls evil good and good evil. All right, That, that spiritually is no longer attuned to the value of a biblical understanding of sexuality as a gift from God that is good and lovely and pure and holy and honorable. Even a culture that has done what? Has thrown that away, is trying to continue to throw that away to raise darkness, a cover under which those things become normative. 
Well, if you're a Christian living in that kind of culture where darkness is more and more pervasive, what is the impact of it on you going to be? It's going to tend to make you lethargic morally. We have to resist those kinds of things that would dull our sensitivity to being people of day. I think sadly of our young people today and the unique challenges that young people in our church face and our culture face. When I was growing up, a lot of the doors were locked. Right? You, you, you couldn't get in them. So you would walk down the hallway of life, and what happened? You knew there was stuff going on in there, but it was hard to get there. It wasn't accepted as okay. There was a sense of right and a sense of wrong, what was appropriate and what was not appropriate. And for our young people, the doors are unlocked, and in many cases, what happens? They're cracked open so that there is a visual connection. And God's warning to us as the church is that we would put aside these ideas of of, of immorality and sensuality that ultimately lead to kind of a a brazen approach to life that, hey, I'm free, I'm independent, I can do whatever I want. God wants us as Christians, God wants you as Christian young people to live with your guard up. To know that I am a person of the light if I have trusted Christ. He's changed me. And he wants me to live for him and for his glory. I think it's fascinating that at the end of this text, he uses words that talk about dissension and jealousy, the desire to be number one, and the inability to be happy with the blessings of others. Okay, a a, a perpetual state of discontentment is a sleeping pill that will drive you away from God and will make you ineffective in the day that God has called you to live in. So God wants us to take these things, and these are simply categories. The list is not exhaustive, but I think we could say that, you know what? That list does a pretty good job of covering the kinds of things, the kinds of temptations that draw on and attract people in the age that we live in. One writer called it a common list of spiritual sleeping pills that dull and kill love and ultimately enslave to self-centeredness. Fascinating, isn't it? Because the previous verses, verses 8 through 10, were a call to love. Going back into chapter 12 even, verse 9 and following, love one another, let that love be sincere. Don't let it be diluted. How do I maintain that kind of firm, God-centered love for others? I need to resist the temptations and resist the tendencies of the age in which you and I live. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul, going down a similar track, says this. He says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness as Christians. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Okay, and so now you find the connection. These other categories of activity are really seen as spiritually sleeping. But we're not of that spiritually sleeping group. We're of the light. We're of the day. We're of righteousness. So Paul says we do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep at at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. God has called us out of darkness, we sing, 
and into his marvelous light. He has called us to be people who know what to avoid, who know what belongs to the darkness and what belongs to the light that is present in Christ. Now, why does Paul list specific sins? Okay, why does he get into details like this? And I think the answer is, it goes something like this. Here's what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to think that in your snare, in your trap, in your addiction, he wants you to think that you are alone and unique. And that victory, overcoming, is not possible. So what does Paul do? Paul gives us a very detailed, somewhat specific, not exhaustive list of categories of things that people struggle with so that we can know in the power of Christ there is hope for victory. And so what does he say to the church? He says, church, this list of things, cast it aside once and for all. Be done with it. And then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's move into this last thought this morning. Put aside everything that promotes apathy, dullness, and spiritual slumber. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, Timothy, flee from youthful lust. Cast it aside. Run from it. Create distance between yourself and that sinful tendency because it will lull you into spiritual sleep. Wake up, Timothy, is what he's saying. And so this is what we say to the church. Wake up. Know what you should avoid. The last thought is this. Know what we must pursue. And Paul kind of touches on this in two ways. He says in verse 12, put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Beginning at verse 14, he changes the covering, but he doesn't change the metaphor. Notice what he says. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what is it? Put Jesus on. Put on the armor of light. So there's a sense in which both of them are, are similes. They, they, they mean something similar. And you understand this when you unpack who Jesus is. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. What does he do? He exposes sin so that it can be driven out of our lives. And be awake, attentive, undistracted followers of Jesus. Put on the armor of light. And, and it, it, this at least means something like this in verse 12. That our new life in Christ is a battle. It's, it's, the, it's the nature of the Christian life. So if you say this morning, Pastor Tim, I am fighting with sin. Is that okay? Yeah, it's actually encouraged. Put on the armor that is light. Cover yourself with Jesus. Now, it's the analogy from Ephesians chapter 6. Christian living is a battle. You will face temptation in this world. And God has given you armor. Ephesians 6 kind of goes into a detail of what that armor looks like and what the, the weapons for warfare look like that help us to live as people of the day. In verse 14, he changes the picture and he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with Him. So put off the List in verse 13, and then put on Jesus Christ. It becomes, in a sense, a metaphor for salvation, but it is also a metaphor for sanctification, isn't it? For the ongoing purity that we as Christians ought to be pursuing. Why should we put on Jesus Christ by faith? Because Jesus, for believers, is this. He is hope for help 
and progress. Put on Jesus. He is hope for help and progress. Put on Jesus because He is hope for salvation from the struggle that you were in. What He has begun in your life, bringing you into the light, bringing you into the kingdom, He promises to fulfill. So rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you clothe yourself with Him, what do you get? Here's what you get. You get forgiveness. You get rescue. You get hope. You have joy, freedom, progress, power, purity, compassion, humility, hope for change. That's what Christ gives. And so Paul says to the believers, put this off and put this on. And when you put this on, this armor, you're going to be able to stand in the day of the battle. And he calls us and encourages us to stand in the power of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8 says this. He says, since we belong to the day, we are born into the kingdom of God. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Christ. So when we're putting on Jesus, what are we getting? We're getting victory over sinful habits. We're taking on the characteristics and the life of Jesus. And we're throwing off the old life of sin and depravity and slavery. In Colossians 1, 13 to 14, here's what Paul says. We put on Christ because He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So why put on Christ? Because when we cover ourselves with Christ, we're reminded we are forgiven. The righteousness of Christ becomes new clothing that adorns a believer. It is the armor of light that identifies who we are. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I think Paul talks about this conversion, this transition. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Darkness, the old life of verse 13 is gone. And a new person is what? They're emerging. Folks, that's what God wants to do with us. He wants to drive off the old filthy clothing of sin and depravity and sensuality and all the things that are attractive but deadly. And He wants us to be people that take Jesus Christ. And if you've never trusted Christ, here's what He wants you to do today. He wants you to come to Him by grace through faith acknowledging simply that verse 13 is part of my life, but the blood of Christ by faith cleanses from all sin. And when you put on Jesus Christ, His blood will cleanse you and forgive you and give you a new birth into the realm of the people of the kingdom of God. If you've never trusted Him, if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Tim, some of those struggles in verse 13, they're my struggles. They're my battles. They're my fight. I don't have the armor of light. I'm going to encourage you this morning. The Bible calls us to repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To say, God, that's me. Forgive me. Cleanse me through the blood of Christ. Cover me in His armor. Cover me in His light. Cover me in His righteousness. Make me a new person. Change my life. And for us as believers, Paul writes the end of verse 14. He gives us this If you want to call it a warning, if you want to call it an exhortation, here's what he says. 
If you're going to live as a person of the day, if you're going to be awake to righteousness, doing the purposes of God, here's what you need to do. You need to stop thinking about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. Okay, so what what does Paul end this text, this call to living as people of light? You know what he gives you? He gives you a very simple strategy. Okay, very simple steps that you can take. Okay, that will assist you in standing as a person of light. And, And it's not complicated. It's very straightforward. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And the idea simply is this. Don't plan on, don't meditate on thoughts of wickedness and sensuality and sin. Okay? And the idea is this. Don't put it on your mental calendar. Deprive it of opportunity. Starve it. Take away oxygen. Let it die. That's the idea. Don't even think it. When it comes to mind, say, God, in the name of Christ, I drive that thought out. I put it under the blood of Christ. Okay? Don't even think about it. Don't think about strife and dissension. Don't think about sensuality and sexual pleasures. Don't think about the abuse of substances. Don't plan to involve yourself in those things. Because the idea of the word that he uses here, this idea of of don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh, the, the idea of desires is the word for lust. What do lust have the capacity to do? They have the capacity to handcuff you and take you prisoner. That's what they have the capacity to do, to enslave. What do we call this? In the modern psychology, they call it addiction. In the Bible, it's called slavery. It is the same thing. What is Paul saying? Don't think about things. Break that chain by depriving it of food, deprive it of opportunity, deprive it of thought in your mind. Drive it out. Cover your life with the righteousness of Christ. As believers, we need to know that there are attitudes and patterns of thinking that are like spiritual sleeping pills that will drive you into a place of lethargy and dullness spiritually and you will wonder, what is going on? Here's what Paul says to you. He says, wake up, wake up. Come awake in Christ. And when you are, put on the armor of light. After you cast off the patterns of sin, And when you do that, you retrieve your life and the opportunities that God has given you, the seasons of life that he is giving to you, those opportunities will be maximized for his glory. What does sin do? Sin causes us to waste our lives. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So sin is a category in which these things take a whole lot of time and they waste life and they waste opportunity. But Jesus says, I have come to give you life, life, abundantly. Put me on and take me in. Cover yourself in me. And as you receive Jesus Christ internally, what happens? It begins to work out in your life. It's how you know the genuine conversion has taken place. Right? That there is a Savior within who is changing the trajectory, the direction, the patterns of our daily life. Luther said this. The reformer, he said, he who nurtures his flesh nurtures an enemy. So put off the old things. 
Put off the things that, that cause you to spiritually become drowsy and insensitive to the voice of God. Drive them away. And in place of those sins, what do you do? You go to God and you say, God, dress me in the righteousness of Christ. Take that which is outside of me and put it upon me. Take what is in me by the work of the Spirit and bring it out of me. Folks, don't waste your life. Know the time in which you live. And when you know what it's like, cast off sin. Put on righteousness. Live for the glory of God. Do you know what time it is? Are you aware of the time? If you're struggling and suffering in this difficult age, here's what Paul wants you to know. Your salvation is nearer than when you believed. I believe there are signs of the times all around us. I believe that. But also by virtue of simply the fact that if you trusted Christ 30 years ago, your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. It's nearer when Paul wrote this letter. It's coming closer. And the idea is it has come near and is ready to be exposed. We are people of light. We are people of hope. Know the time in which you live. And grasp the opportunity that God has given to you. And live for Him. Live for His glory. You know, be like the farmer who's out there diligently planting a crop. And at the end of the season, come October, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be harvesting the results of their labor. And every Christian who cultivates the soil of his or her life, who pulls out the weeds of sin, will one day reap a harvest of righteousness that will be lifted up before Jesus Christ as an example of His great glory and power that changed your life, delivered you from darkness, made you a person of light, and gave you a life that no longer was wasted, but instead that was fruitful. Let's bow our heads together this morning.